Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged a great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, the white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, And their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Last week we considered the repeated word Alleluia in this chapter, Revelation chapter 19. And we asked a very simple question, why? Why this Alleluia chorus? We know that this was the great basis for Handel's Messiah, this this, uh, triumphant Hallelujah chorus, but why? And the basic answer to that basic question 
was simply that they have been brought to worship because they have seen, they have witnessed, and they understand the implications of this last installment of God's mighty work of redemption. We know that there are many acts, several main acts to this work of redemption, and there's the final one of the judgment of this world. But we know that every act of judgment is also an act of salvation. Every judgment against the world, against the seed of the serpent, as we had in in Genesis chapter 3, is also an act of salvation for God's people, for the church, the seed of the woman. And we didn't speak about that so much. And today, with by God's help and blessing, that's what we want to talk about, this other aspect, this act of salvation and blessing for God's people. And specifically, that how the end of the world also means that the time for the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. This is the wedding of the Lamb. And in a real sense, this is what it's all about. We look through the works of redemptive history. We look through all of creation and history and, and redemption and the cross and all the rest of it. All that is to bring about this great day. It's about Christ getting for himself a bride. We understand the cross as this procurement, as this payment of a dowry in a sense, of making it possible that this bride might be his. And we think about how the invitation goes out to the world how he is building up his church. He's inviting all the wedding guests. He's making all this to be possible. In fact, the one last thing that needed to happen, we know that the world only continues on in existence until the last one, the last one of God's elect people is brought into saving faith. And this work has been going on as the church witnesses to the truth and people are brought in. And then that last person is brought, the 144,000, which is symbolic of the perfect number of God's elect. That number is complete. And then what happens? Then the world is judged. And the place, you see, is made ready for that wedding feast to happen. It, it couldn't happen as long as the rebels are working their rebel warfare, their insurgency. It couldn't happen as, as long as these uh, people are polluting the place of the wedding feast. But now they have been brought into judgment and they've been cleared out and the great day of the wedding feast has come. Now, I mentioned two things, and we have to understand that in both, in different ways, we are both the bride of Christ and also the wedding guests. We, we see that uh, these things are used interchangeably in this, and I just want to say from the outset, we're both of those things. God's people, in different ways, are both of those things. And so, again, the whole history of redemption can be seen as this process, as this bringing about the wedding feast in both senses. As the bride... You think about what is the groom, how does a, a, a wedding, particularly a traditional wedding, happen? Well, it's the groom's choice of bride. That's the sovereign election of his people, you see. Then it's the groom's invitation to the bride, and that's the gospel message. It's the agreement of the bride and the bride's family, that faith, apprehending Christ in faith, receiving that invitation. And then it's a public betrothal. And what is the public betrothal? Well, it's our baptism. We're publicly betrothed to be the Lord's. And then there's the groom's preparation and payment of the dowry. Well, as I mentioned, we can see that happening on the cross. There was a price to be paid. We came with a great price on our heads, an infinite price, and Christ paid it in order that we might be his bride. Then there's a time of waiting. There's an interval in between that, awaiting for the day of the wedding to come. 
And that's our current situation. As we await the second coming, we are waiting for the wedding. And then just beforehand, there's the bride's preparation of putting on the wedding dress. And of course, that's our sanctification, our growth and holiness. And then finally, the wedding and our glorification and forever to be with the Lord in heaven. And it's very, very similar if we think of it in terms of wedding guests. Because the groom decides who he's going to invite. That's his sovereign election. Then the groom has an invitation. He says, would you like to come? And then there's agreement of the guests. That's their faith. Reception of that message, I believe, and I want to go. The groom's preparation and payment for this wedding. Because there is a payment for this wedding. And he had to pay it. And then again, an interval as the guests wait for the wedding. And then the, finally, the guest has a little bit of pre- preparation as well. The, the bride puts on her wedding dress, and the guest put on their wedding garments, which is also a picture of our sanctification. And then finally, they as well come into the wedding. Well, this, as I say, is what it's all about, the wedding of the, the Lamb. That's what it's all leading us into. And... What we, in fact, uh, not so long ago mentioned in the midweek Bible study, first, or 2 Corinthians eleven two, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And this is also the thing about Revelation. We know that in the letters to the seven churches, these churches are being presented with temptations. They're being presented with temptations to compromise with the world. They're being presented with temptations to fall in with the harlot's fornication. And the message of revelation to these people is that you've been betrothed. You are soon enough to be the bride of Christ and you need to keep yourself clean. You're to be a chaste virgin to Christ. We'll come to these things as we think of the applications. But first, let's think of the wedding of the Lamb under these three points. First, blessed are those called to the wedding. Second, the invitation is legitimate. And third, the bride is ready. Blessed are those called to the wedding. The invitation is legitimate and the bride is ready. So first, blessed are those called to the wedding and we read in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it says marriage supper in our, in our translations, but we could just as easily say wedding because that's what a marriage supper is. It's the wedding. And blessed are those. Now, blessed, that's almost an understatement. And I, I feel very inadequate this morning to be able to convey just the blessing of it. That's my great frustration as I look at this sermon. And even now, having tried to prepare something, I just simply cannot convey the blessedness of this wedding feast, of this marriage. Why, why are they blessed? Just ask us a simple question. What's so blessed about it? What would be blessed about any wedding? Well, we have to consider who the, the, the groom is. We have to consider this lamb what he's done and what the wedding entails, right? Now this lamb is the son of God. And that is the ultimate frog turns into a prince story. You know, those children's stories. And, and little girls would love to be in a situation of some ordinary seeming person or even creature. Turns out to be a glorious prince. It's not apparent at first. But soon enough we find that out. Well, that's the reality, the root of that. 
legend, story, idea is, of course, Christ himself, who came in this world in a state of humiliation. It was not apparent to people around him that he was the king of glory, the prince of peace, the son of the living God. It was not apparent because he was in a state of humiliation. He came gentle. He came without having laid aside the outward accoutrements of his glory, certainly not his divinity. He was the God-man at every moment. But all those things he laid aside and, and were not visible. And you have to ask, why did he do that? What was the point of it? Well, the root of the point of that, the reason why this all happened was just so that he could win us. There needed to be many things happen. First of all, that we, he would live, he'd take on our flesh, which is a very humble thing. That the eternal Son of God would take on human flesh. Yes, not fallen flesh, not sinful flesh, but human flesh nonetheless. And subject to all of our limitations, subject to all the curse in this world, all part of his work of humiliation that, that is part of the work of redeeming his people for himself. He did it out of love for his people. He walked in such humility to be subject to suffering and ultimately to death. This lamb is the king of glory. Now, this wedding is our, this wedding supper. We're saying that that's the, the, um, the groom. He turns out to be a prince. This prince turns out to be the prince of peace, the king of glory. And there's, he's, he's wonderful in every way. It's not just that he has power. It's not just that he has royalty and authority. Uh, lots of earthly princes have that. They have riches and they have a palace and all the rest of it. But sometimes they turn out to be not so great, not so faithful, not so holy in their own conduct. Well, that is not, certainly, certainly not the case with this prince. Because not only does he have this royal authority, not only does he have this power and all the rest of it, which he, he laid aside for a time, in order that he might win the bride. But he, of course, is perfectly holy. And perfectly loving. And we must consider this. And all of our, we, we tend to pick up one side of the stick and not the other. And sometimes we know the church has gone with the, the, the idea of the humiliation of Christ and gone way too far. And they've made him into a very weak and effeminate character who wouldn't harm a flea and, and all the rest. And if there's one thing that we've seen in Revelation that is not the case, he is a mighty king. And he is a conquering king. And he is a mighty captain in general over all the forces of God. And he most certainly will be the judge as well in this final day. He's all of those things. So we cannot think of him uh, in, in purely one sense or the other. But in all that, we must not lose sight of also the fact that he is so perfectly loving. And that to his own people, there is no one more tender, no one more kind, no one more willing to put himself out for his own people. And he does those things because he's so Wonderful, you see. Infinitely worthy of our love and affection. And the weddings are, are wonderful, aren't they? The weddings, there's something about the occasion themselves that are so, it's so wonderful and beautiful to be a part of it in any way. As our church has been blessed to see over the, the summer. But what really makes a wedding wonderful is the one to whom we're getting married. And that's, of course, what we have in Christ. The perfect, in every way, the perfect spouse. So it is blessed. 
And it says, blessed are those who are called. Because you don't just get to this wedding unless you've been called to it. You don't just show up. You can't crash the gate to this wedding. You have to be called to it. And what we had in Revelation 17:14, those who make war with the Lamb, uh, they, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. If we think of ourselves, and we ought to think of ourselves, if we are, have put our faith in Christ as his people, we must think of ourselves as being called. We are called. And we are chosen. First Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. In John 6.39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And the point I'd particularly make about this one, it's all he has given me. All right? He's given, uh, the story of the cross has at least to do with the Father's election of certain people and of giving those people to the Son. And he says, Son, I want you to save him. Well, that's the bride of Christ. You see, that's his people. He is, the Father has decided who is going to be, and the Son is going to save them. And he has, and he will save them. That calling is not universal, it's particular. It is limited to those whom the Father has given. And that's why then in First Peter, as I mentioned, we are a chosen generation. Now these things, the idea of calling, the, the idea of, of choosing, now sometimes calling is a very general call. And the call goes out to lots of people who don't receive it. And sometimes we can think of call as a very specific and effectual calling. And those things, those people, that, that number of those who are effectually called is the same number of those who are chosen. But the way it's put, for instance, in the parable of the wedding feast, and we can't forget about this parable in Matthew 22, the way it's put is this in Matthew 22:11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? For many are called, but few are chosen. And the explanation for why this man did not have a wedding garment, the explanation for why he was in the end cast into outer darkness and not received into the wedding feast, not an invited guest, not welcome in heaven, is because he was not chosen. The call goes out, the invitation goes out, but not all are chosen. And that's why, you see, it's blessed. Because I think the sense of those, the, the sense that we're talking about here in this chapter, of blessed are those who are called, is that effectual calling. The call that is, is co-extant with those who are chosen. That's why you're so blessed. To be part of that wedding is immensely, infinitely blessed. But not everyone is called. Not everyone is chosen to be a part of it. But those who are are greatly blessed. It's nothing that we have done in order to earn being chosen, but rather simply by the sovereign determination of God that you are going to be called to that wedding feast. That is the greatest blessing that anyone could possibly have. And so these words, again, I know I've not done them justice, but we have to understand something of the reality that blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed. Now, secondly, 
we have to see that the invitation is legitimate. In verse 9 it says, And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And we have to wonder, why is it that he has to be so emphatic about this? It's not every time in Revelation, it's only a few times where the angel or Christ has to say to John, write something. Now, obviously, all of this is under the command and inspiration of God that he's writing any part of this. And there's no exception to it. But then there are certain parts where he says, write. And those are the things to be particularly emphasized. Those are the things that we cannot forget. They're really important. Write. These are the true sayings of God. Well, if you think about it, the reason why it's so important is because this is the big wedding of all time. You think of the royal wedding not so long ago and how people coveted invitations and even people that we would consider to be hugely important political figures and celebrities and the rest of them. Some of them didn't get an invitation and others angled and, and desperately wanted to get an invitation. How, how much they would want to have an invitation to such a thing. Well, much, much, much more so this wedding. Much, much, much more so. That event, glorious as it was, came and went. It's gone now. And the memory is beginning to fade. And so it has been with all earthly weddings. But this wedding does not come to an end. And the reality of those who are are invited and those who are not, that goes on for eternity and there's no changing it whatsoever. Infinite and eternal bliss or infinite and eternal woe and damnation, it all rides on having this invitation. So can you imagine if that's the case, that it just might be a possibility that there might be fake invites to that wedding? Do you think that there might be motivation out there for fake invites to such things? And it happens kind of actually in two different ways. We should be worried about other weddings false advertisements to weddings who aren't the real thing. They, they act and they portray themselves as being the big event, the big wedding, but actually it's another wedding. Well, that's all the other religions in the world. They have their happy story. They have their idea of heaven. They have their idea of an, an eternal reward. But all of them are to some other event, and it's a fake event. It's not going to happen. They're giving out real invitations to an event that's not going to happen. And we ought to be very worried about that, Absolutely. But even more so, we've got to be worried about fake invites to the real wedding. And that's what every false form of Christianity is. Every denomination, every church that does not preach the pure gospel of grace, grace alone, by faith alone, Christ alone, it's a fake invite. There's some sort of works involved somewhere there, some sort of human activity that is part of that. And they say, there you are, you have your invitation. Some sort of ritual, perhaps. There you are, you have your invitation. But you can't believe it because it's fake. The invitation is fake. Well, that's not the case here. What we have are the true sayings of God. And it's just in these words, in fact, blessed are those who are invited. And the understanding, as we've said, the, invitation, the understanding of this calling, the understanding that it's due to the sovereign election of God, the understanding that the basis upon which we come is the invitation of Christ and of his making it possible through the dowry paid on the cross and of our apprehending of him through faith, 
Just because of those things, that's the true invitation. That's the real thing. And if that's your understanding, and, and if you have received this invitation, you've heard it. Not everyone does, by the way. You understand. Not everyone ever hears that invitation. But if you've heard it, and if you've believed it, you have to understand that these are the true sayings of God. It's not a fake. And if somewhere in your heart, you as a Christian wonder whether this, this wedding's going to happen, don't wonder. And if you as a Christian wonder whether your invitation is real, you don't have to. Because these are the true sayings of God. It would be easier for the world itself to fall and fail than these words not to happen. That, I think, helps us to understand the somewhat strange event that happens right after that in verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, unlike us, John was enabled to really see the blessedness of this. And when the idea and the reality that is being portrayed for him and is being depicted to him and given to him comes home. Some, some people think that he's simply uh, tempted to worship the angel because the angel is so glorious. Well, he's seen lots of angels. He's, I think by this point, by chapter 19, he's used to seeing these glorious angels. And I don't think that's the issue. I don't think it's merely the outward appearance of the angel. I think it is the, the content of what the angel's message to John is. It's so glorious. It's come home to him. And now he succumbs to the temptation to worship the messenger. Well, thankfully, this messenger, I wish it was the case for every human messenger of this gospel. But this messenger is, is taken aback and considers it a terrible thing for such a thing to happen. And he says it in the strongest way, conveyed much stronger in the Greek than we can do it in English, see that you don't do that. Two little words and most emphatic in Greek, don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. All he's doing is conveying, you see, this truth, this true message. But what he wants to say, at the, as soon as he disavows any kind of personal worth, any kind of personal worship, he disavows that entirely. But he, does, he affirms the other half of it. He says, but the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm one of your fellow brethren who have that testimony of Jesus. That's why I can convey this. You have this testimony too. Don't forget about that. In fact, all of God's people, in various ways, have this testimony of Jesus Christ. None of us are the slightest worthy of worship, but the message that we convey is so glorious. That's why we have in Scripture, you know, Paul says, the message is so glorious, it's a good thing we carry it about in clay pots, in earthen vessels. In fact, it is God's design that it be conveyed in these earthen vessels. Now, of course, an angel isn't quite so earthen, and it's not, he's not quite so apparent in his, his fallings and, and failings. And sadly, I guess in some ways, that's why an angel doesn't make in God's providence the perfect messenger ordinarily for God's people because we'd be so tempted to do what John did, which is to worship the angel. But the point in all of that is that the message itself of the blessedness of being invited to this heavenly wedding feast is so glorious that we, we too, I imagine, would be tempted to worship the one who is able to convey it to us. Well, 
The invite is real, and that much we need to remember. The invitation is absolutely real because these are the true sayings of God. Thirdly and finally, and this one will be a long point, that the bride is ready. It says at the end of verse 7, And his wife has made herself ready, in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And in this, as we consider this particular point, there are these two things that, we have, that are juxtaposed that we have to fit together. The reality of God's grace in us being our righteousness, our clothing that he gives us. And yet also that somehow it is the righteous acts of the saints. Somehow these things have to fit together. All right, well, let's begin just by thinking of the concept of the fact that this wife, this bride, has made herself ready. Now, that word, to make ready or to prepare, is an extremely important one. And if you were to simply do a a Bible study or a word study of these words in the New Testament, you'd find out some interesting things. But just bear with me for a moment as I walk you through it. Because this is the work of John the Baptist. It was the work of John the Baptist to prepare Luke 1.17, he also will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He was making ready. And then in the Gospels, more than once, we have this picture of Christ having a wedding. And then there are two aspects of being ready. Christ himself prepares the things and makes them ready through the cross. And we see that in Matthew 22.4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. A picture, I think, of the penal substitution or atonement. And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. There's that preparation that has to be ready, that has to be made by Christ. Now, it's not just the wedding itself, but the kingdom that we're going to come into afterward that has to be prepared. In Matthew twenty five thirty four, then the king will say to those people on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, there it is again, inherit the kingdom of, uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he's preparing the wedding, but he's also preparing the kingdom of which we're going to enter into. It's been prepared for us from the foundation of the world. It's preparation. There's a work of preparation as Christ builds up his kingdom by the proclamation of the gospel. That's how this kingdom is being prepared. The work of proclaiming the gospel and of people coming to Christ and of people being saved and sanctified. And this place then, that we're being, this kingdom that is being prepared, that's the place we desire. As Hebrews 11.16 says, that we desire a better, that is a heavenly country. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That is what he's doing. That is, again, this work of human history right now. He's preparing a place. He is preparing the kingdom for us. It's all in preparation. And supremely, and and, in the most moving words of all, the words of Christ himself in John 14.2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I do hope that you are moved in some sense by those words. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what Christ is doing in this world. And in heaven, he's preparing a place for us. As 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And we have to revert to that, don't we? 
Because we have to say that it is so marvelous, so wonderful. There's nothing I can do or say to truly get you to understand how marvelous it is. We have to say, eye has not seen, or ear has not heard. It's not even entered in our hearts. The things which God has prepared for us, this work of preparation. But now, the thing is, that's Christ's work. That's his preparation. But it's not merely the external preparation of the kingdom, not merely the external preparation of this wedding that he's working on. It's also the preparation in us that we are being prepared. Romans 9.23 says that he might make known to us the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's prepared certain vessels for glory. That's us. Or Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we are being prepared. That is us. These good works that we are doing. In Revelation 21, 2, these two aspects come together. We'll come to it, Lord willing, someday. These two aspects of what Christ is doing and the preparation that the good works that we are being prepared to be in come together. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. She's prepared. Who prepared her? Well, of course, Christ did. But that preparation includes not only the fact that she's been brought in, not only that her sins have been paid for, but also in the righteous acts that she herself, by God's power, is able to perform. And so we see his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Now, I would just ask again, is this readiness, this preparation, a matter of attracting a husband? Is she putting on this garb in order to attract Christ? I I say this because, you know, some people think that you do work for your salvation. You do good works in order to earn coming into the wedding feast. Well, no, that's, that's not it at all. That's not what happens in a wedding. You see, the marriage has already been determined. It's already been contracted. The wedding date is set. There's nothing left then. In that sense, to earn a husband. We don't earn a husband by our good works. Rather, we just want to look good. Rather, we want this wedding to be something special. I'd say this, by the way, just a little aspect of our custom for wedding that may not perfectly reflect the spiritual reality. Okay, just bear with me. Is that the bride goes off and buys a dress in our customs. She goes off and buys a dress of her own choosing. And the, the groom doesn't have any idea what it might be until the wedding day. Now, I understand there's some probably good things in there. But there's one little element, and I don't know if you've thought about it, but what if the groom doesn't like it? What if it's not to the groom's taste? That would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? I, I hope that's, that's never happened. But you know what? There's no chance of that happening here. There's no chance of that happening in the heavenly wedding because Christ himself picks out the wedding dress. And you can be absolutely sure that it is to to his taste. These good works which he beforehand has prepared that his people would walk in, it's perfectly to his taste. And moreover, again, unlike our customs, the pride doesn't pay for it. Christ pays for this garb. He pays for this dress. Good thing. Because the price is infinitely beyond anyone's ability to pay. Because, well... Those of you who have been attending this church know, um, I hope by now, the section in Zechariah 3 by heart. 
because I frequently refer to this. We talk about what the nature of this dress is and what it costs. Well, the situation is of Zechariah, the high priest, in in Zechariah 3.3. Or sorry, Joshua, the high priest, I mean. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And what are these filthy garments? Is his sin, right? His sin. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And he said, See, I have removed your iniquity, your sin from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. Right? So here it is. What is wrong with us? We are clothed in iniquity. We are wearing our sins on us. And someone else, God has to take that away from us and put on his own clean clothing on us of righteousness. What did it cost? That's Revelation 7.13. One of the elders answered and said to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only detergent, the only agent powerful enough to wash us clean, to wash away our sins is the blood of Christ. And that's what we have done for us. But now here's the strange thing. That the way this clothing is described is as the righteous acts of the saints. That's the thing, again, that's a little bit hard to put together. Now, and what does that consist, these righteous acts? Well, holiness, of course. And in the context of Revelation, by the way, that particularly means separation from the world. It's like in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. What is it? To visit orphans and widows in their trouble? And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You see the idea of unspotted from the world. That the idea may be that we've already been given Christ's righteousness as our justification. And we're made righteous perfectly in his sight. But yet there's a reality of walking in this world. And of the need to be unspotted from it. Now, all of this came from Christ. It's his workmanship. We already said that in Ephesians 2.10. The fact that, that God's people can keep themselves unspotted from the world, the fact that God's people can do righteous acts, that's entirely the work of God himself in Christ. It's, his, it's our workmanship. It's his workmanship that we walk in them. And similarly, Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And I guess what I'm trying to say in all this is that these works of justification and of sanctification are all one great work of God's salvation for us. It's all from him. But there is a little bit of difference between justification and sanctification. All right? Now, if you imagine, I want you to just imagine, one, of the, one category, justification, the other one, sanctification. And then underneath them, two different words for the way God gives us grace. One of them is imputation, and the other word is infusion. All right? I know this is, we're, we're having these technical terms, but it's important, all right? Because what properly defines the way that God communicates his grace to us in a justification is imputation. 
The alien righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is given to us. It's not properly ours. There's no part of us. There's no fingerprints of you and I on that righteousness at all. We, we are made just entirely through the imputed righteousness of Christ. But what about sanctification? Sanctification, the right word there is infusion. Now, there's an infusion of God's grace but what happens in our sanctification is that we're actually enabled to do good works. And there are, and as it were, our fingerprints. Now God is moving our hands in order to do these works. Yet our fingerprints are on this grace, these, these, this righteousness. Okay? And just a uh, larger catechism. Just so you know, infusion itself is a bad word when used uh, when speaking of justification. That's the error of the Roman Catholic Church. But it is a good word when it comes to sanctification. And what it says in the larger Catechism 77, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? What's the difference? Well, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in what? That God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables enables the exercise thereof. Enables the exercise thereof. Well, so in both of these things then, we have this righteousness. We have this preparation. The bride has made herself ready. Christ is the one who's done it. That's his work. She's been handed this dress to wear, and all she has to do is to walk in this world unspotted from it. And Christ is the one who has enabled this to happen. All right. Now, some application. First of all, we have to extend the invitation. All right. I said the invitation is real, and if you're here this morning, having not received that, having not received Jesus Christ, the invitation is yours one more time. I mentioned this word providing. I mentioned the idea of providing something and of preparing something, because that's what Christ is doing for his people. He is preparing a place for us. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, that's what Christ is doing. What about ourselves? What about Satan? He's also preparing a place for us. And it's in hell. And he's working very hard to make sure that we're going to be there. And in fact, he's going to make sure that it's going to be hotter than it otherwise would be. As he continually works to to tempt you and to deceive you and to bring you into greater sin, hell is going to be the worse for you as he does this work. He's preparing a place in hell for you. And along with it, there is the idea and the desire for we ourselves to want to prepare a place. Outside of Christ, apart from his work, we want to prepare a place. And I want you to understand that we're greatly deceived in trying to do that. You think of the story of the rich farmer in Luke 12. What is the conclusion to all of his work, all of his desire to build up an earthly paradise, to to provide things for himself that are never going to, to fall away? This is what God says. He says, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things will those things be which you have provided? And again, the better translation is prepared. You prepared these things in order that you might have an earthly paradise, a kingdom on earth, a mansion. You're preparing a mansion for yourself, this earthly paradise. But it's all illusion. It's all going to fall away in a moment of time, and your soul will be required of you. Well, again, the invitation is for you to go to someone else's place, which he's going to provide. To receive someone else's righteousness, which will make you just. The invitation is real. These are the true sayings of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. 
That's the invitation. You ought to receive it. And second, I want us to think about the reality of the garment. And this is a related issue, of course. I just want to convey to you very briefly something that happened back in Revelation chapter 3. And it's wise counsel. Sometimes it's so hard to find wise counsel in this world. We have all the world trying to tell us to do very foolish things. But every once in a while we get to hear wise counsel. And I want you to hear this wise counsel. Do you know what it says? Revelation 3, 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This is Christ's words to a church. Christ's words to this church. I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire. White garments that you may be clothed. That's my counsel. And finally, make yourself ready. Okay? Now, if good works don't save you, and we're very clear on this, Christian, we're very clear on this. If good works don't save you, why do it? Well, I just say, make this little comparison. You know, wearing clean clothes doesn't save you either. Why are you doing it? Most of you here are wearing clean clothes. Why? why aren't you going to argue with me and say, I don't need to wear clean clothes because it won't save me? Somehow you're all doing it. Why? Because it's good. It's nice. It's something you enjoy doing. It's something... Who would want to wear uh, wet and, and dirty and smelly clothes if you had a choice? You'd have to, there'd have to be something wrong with you to want that, right? There'd have to be something wrong with you. And of course, we know that the mentally ill don't seem to care. The mentally ill do sometimes want to be clothed in, in terrible things. But you know... God's people, we should want, not because we're going to earn salvation, but because we know it's to the taste of the one who has called us, the one that we're betrothed to. Because he is giving us these clean clothes to wear, he wants us to wear them. And because these clothes are inherently attractive to us, or ought to be, And that they are salutary and good and beneficial and healthy for us to wear in every way that could be possibly imagined. That's why we wear them. You know, it's interesting. We sometimes just, we stop halfway through 1 Timothy 2.9. We say, in a like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. And we stop and forget what else goes on. But which is proper for women, women professing godliness with good works. That is the recommendation. That is the clothing that God's people should want to put on, with good works. Christ is doing this work of, pre- of preparing his bride. And even moment by moment and day by day, as he gathers more people, he doesn't just stop by bringing us in. He then makes us clean. He makes us pure. He makes us to be clothed. In righteousness. We ought to make ourselves ready by availing ourselves of these things. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we have readily admitted and do so again, Lord, that it is impossible truly to convey these things. 
Lord, we see that when John understood them, when he understood the great blessedness of the wedding feast and of being called to it, that he fell down in worship even before an angel, a fellow servant. Well, Lord, we certainly don't want that sort of thing. But on the other hand, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see the great blessedness of it. As if those who are still outside, those who are not believers, were to see it, they would surely put their faith in Christ. And if we, your people, were to understand this great blessedness, Lord, and understand the, the reality of the garments that we've been given, clean and pure and white, Lord, we would lose all attraction to sin and the things of this world. And Lord, so we pray that you would work through your own inspired word and through your Holy Spirit that we might see and receive these things, that we might apprehend Christ by faith, that, Lord, you might make us ready and that we might be made ready in the perfect righteousness of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.